glad that, uh, that everybody's here tonight. I'm glad to uh, be presenting this material to you. Uh, throughout the summer, I have uh, been traveling uh, to a couple of different destinations uh, presenting this material. I've been to Atlanta and presented this. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And two weeks from tonight, I'll be in, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, where I will present this one more time. And so uh, tonight, uh, doing this here at home at Cornerstone so that we can uh, capture it for our purposes, and it'll be up on our podcast very soon, and uh, you can share it. Uh, in fact, I'd encourage you to share it with people that, uh, uh, that might, could be encouraged by it, because what I have come to realize uh, and I'm sure you have too, is that a lot of people, if not all people, have experienced some sort of loss, right? I mean, just about all of us have experienced that. All of us have experienced uh, losing a, a, a person. Uh, and loss is not simply limited to just losing a loved one. It, is, uh, it could be a job, you know. It could be income. It could be uh, status. It could be a home. It could be, you know, all of those things. Uh, or, or something that we haven't even discussed yet. Any of those things that are significant, that bring about life change, where you feel, you know, you feel that loss. We're talking about all of those things. So as I talk about this stuff, you know, if it's, you've lost a loved one, then, you know, you'll filter it that way. But if it's something else, if it's like you've lost a job or you've lost a home or whatever it is, you know, feel free to filter it through, through that lens as well because I think that all of this will apply uh, in, in, in what we're talking about. And so I'm talking about hope beyond hurt and how we handle uh, loss and grief. Now then, what I've already said to the uh, previous two audiences that have, that have heard this is I'm not in any stretch of the imagination an expert in this. I don't claim to be an expert in this. Now, I claim to be presenting some stuff from some experts, but I am not the expert. What I'm trying to do is just share from my own experience, and the stuff that I will be presenting to you, I will share how I responded in certain situations, and things that I did as I was going through loss and grief, and there'll be some good things that I did, but there'll also be some things that I did where it was not as healthy an expression as it probably could have been. And as I talk about some of those things, you'll probably be able to identify with some. Say, so, you know what, as I've dealt with loss, whatever it might be, I found myself doing some of those things. And so chances are, are, are pretty good that you will be familiar uh, with, with a lot of these things that I talk about. Uh, I'm grateful to... Um, uh, one of my professors, uh, Dr. Chris Miller, uh, I've gotten a lot of this material from him, and he presented this to us, and, and he's given me permission to use and to present this, and so what I've done is I've taken it, and I've kind of made it work with the presentation that I use, and so I've adjusted some things to make it a little more personal for my own use, and so I'm really grateful for, uh, for Dr. Miller and, uh, and his blessing in, uh, in what I was doing. All right, so let me give you some of my backstory, some about me. I am the oldest of three brothers. Grew up in the Atlanta area. Um, 
always involved in church from the time I was, from the time I was little. Um, had a great home life. Parents were very involved. I'm the really handsome one in the uh, lower right-hand corner with the blazer, the crested blazer. You can't see the crest, but there's a crest on that blazer. Uh, but we had a, just had a, a really good home life, really good growing up life, very involved in church uh, from, from a very early age. Loved music from a very early age. Uh, still do. And my brother and I, my middle brother, the one in the, uh, in the green polyester suit there, uh, that's Micah. He and I, as we got older, we would do a lot of singing, and we, or at least we thought we could sing. And so we'd put, these, we'd put singing groups together, and you know, that was kind of our goal, to be in, in music ministry. That's what we wanted, and, and one of us achieved that goal. Um, not so much me, but he did. He went on to, do, uh, to, to really become very good at it and be, uh, be very professional uh, with this. Uh, but then there was our, our younger brother, Matt, and he is just, you know, just ball of energy. He's much like my son, Miles, just kind of into everything, literally crawling walls, things like that. Just, you know, a lot of fun to be around uh, or a really big headache at other times. Uh, and those of you that have taught Miles, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But just as, you know, I love my son, Miles, I love my brother, Matt. And uh, uh, just really enjoyed growing up with, with him. Middle school, he started having some struggles. He started to, uh, to experiment with some things, with some drugs. He was... Uh, uh, starting to hang around with some people and be influenced by some people that, uh, that he did not really need to be hanging around. Now, I was married and, and moved off and, and in, in ministry by this point, and Micah was with a group called Straight Company, and they were traveling the country singing and just put out an album and all of this stuff, and uh, he recognized what Matt was going through, and he said, you know what, I want, I'm just going to influence and I'm going to infiltrate his world. I want to bring him out of this stuff, out of these struggles that he's dealing with. And so he moved, uh, he moved, Matt, he moved Matt up, to, up to, to Louisville. Oh, there's a picture of us too right there, circa 1986. I'm the uh, sun's out, guns out there. Uh, that inspired Jeffrey Owens, a lot of his shirts that he wears. Uh, that's on top of Kennesaw Mountain, by the way. If you've ever been to Kennesaw and hiked up there, that's where, uh, that's where that is. I like to refer to this picture as burgeoning awesomeness. I think you understand why. But uh, anyway, Micah moved Matt up to Louisville, where Straight Company was based, to kind of just have an influence on him and get him away from some of the, the, the people and the, the element that he was surrounding himself with. Well, one weekend they had to return back home to Atlanta, where we're from, to, to take care of some sort of business. I don't remember exactly what it was. But Matt convinced Micah to go down into, uh, into downtown Atlanta. Uh, and in a weak moment, they ended up purchasing $200 worth of heroin. Went back home. Uh, they both snorted this heroin, uh, laid down and went to sleep, caused 
their lungs to bleed. They aspirated on their, on their, on their blood. Um, my dad found them uh, early in the morning and, uh, you know, kind of put his hand on my brother's chest and realized there was a problem. He, he called 911 immediately. He began administering uh, CPR to him. And in that moment, his body kind of uh, convulsed, and he rolled him to his side, and just out came this, this mixture of, of blood and heroin uh, in a spot about this big on my parents' you know, white carpet in their, in their living room. We get the call. I'm ministering in Alabama at the time, and we, you know, we make it to Atlanta in, in, in record time because they've both been, been transported to the hospital. We're just waiting to see you know, what's, what's going on, and I get there, and my dad tells us kind of what's happened. He says that, uh, you know, um, uh, Matt is in ICU, they're watching over him, but Micah didn't make it. Micah passed away on, uh, on February 28th, uh, 2002. And it was, you know, it was incredibly difficult. It was incredibly difficult to deal with. Uh, losing a, a, a sibling, losing someone that close to you. Some of you probably can imagine what that's like. Some of you have experienced that, and so you understand what that's like to lose someone that you've grown up with and you've been around your whole life. And so to lose him of, of anybody was incredibly difficult because he was involved in, in ministry. And it wasn't an addiction that took his life. It was a weak moment. Does that make sense? In a weak moment, he lost his life. Made no sense to us. Matt was in ICU. First night was 50-50, didn't know if he'd make it or not. He eventually made a turn for the better. He survived. Uh, he found out that, um, he found out that um, Micah did not make it. And, of course, he entered a, uh, a period of, of depression. We realized he was having a problem. So Bethany and I, and my wife, we moved him in with us. And uh, through God's grace, he began to put his life back together. He began to flourish a little bit in a job and, 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 and really started doing well. And, of course, I was doing a lot of speaking at that time. And I got asked to go and, and just sort of share this story. And I did, and then I was approached by a, a large youth conference to come and, and do it there, and they wanted to know if I'd bring my brother with me, and I was like, yeah, probably not. I doubt very seriously he's going to do this, but again, by God's grace, he agreed to do it, and we spoke three times that day, and there was, uh, there was hardly, when I say there was hardly any room to walk, I mean, we had a lectern like this, and we had literally this space right behind it. People were just overflowing the room and we realized in that in that moment that God was calling us to to do something with this to share this story because evidently it was could impact lives and so we founded Brothers Three Ministries and we began to travel all over the place uh, and and to share our story and we had this tagline that God can turn tragedy into victory because that's what we felt like he was doing in our lives and so we traveled and we spoke to 30,000 people in just, uh, just, just really about 18 months. We were just going all over the place and, and things were going really good. 
Uh, Matt, in the meantime, got married. He moved right down the road here to, to Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, had, uh, had two little girls, and uh, life was just, uh, was just really, really good. Well, he was a prison guard. That's what he was by trade. And he was, uh, he was pretty high-ranking. Um, he worked in the private prison system, and they were sold or bought out or their company lost the contract to another lower-bidding prison. And so they ended up having to move down to South Florida, down to Fort Myers. And he, so he moved down there, and he got promoted to captain, which meant when he was on the compound... He was the number four person in command over a couple of thousand inmates. And he was doing really well uh, in this job. Well, then around 2012, uh, around 2012, he sort of hit a snag in things in his career. And all of a sudden, he found himself without a job. He then found himself divorced. And divorced and without a job and really no place to live, sort of living week to week in one of those pay-to-stay, you know, those kinds of places. The bills start to add up, and child support, and, and all of these other things started, started rolling in. He just got in a very, very dark place, and my mom and I went down to see him and tried to get him to come and, and move in with me again here in Thomasville, and he just he couldn't do it. He couldn't leave his girls. Um... And he just, it was just too difficult. Finally, after a couple of weeks, he called me. He said, hey, I'm coming. And he moved to Thomasville. And, and those of you that were here during that time, you remember that. You remember what he was like when he got here. And I remember the first time Jackson, you know, my oldest son, saw him. He really had trouble recognizing him because he just looked emaciated. You know, he was not eating. He was under a tremendous amount of stress. He just did not look healthy. So he just moved in there, and you remember how he was when he'd first come around here. He was just kind of quiet. He'd keep to himself. I mean, he's polite. He would speak, but not outgoing or, or anything like that. And then uh, we were going to, uh, to youth conference at, at Lipscomb, at uh, Impact, and I purposely held a spot open wanting him to go. Uh, and I just told him, hey, look, I want you to go. I, you know, I don't know if I can, you know, I don't, eh, I'm not sure. And, uh, and I basically told him, hey, look, you're freeloading. You got nothing else to do. You're going to impact, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I could do that. He's living under my roof, and I'm paying for all his stuff. So, you know, plus, he didn't have a job. What else was he going to do? So, you know, I took him to impact with us. And um, was anybody with us on that trip? Were you on that trip with him? Were you, Kendall, were you on that trip? Impact changed his life. It had an impact on him. When he got there and he heard the worship and he heard the messages and he heard the hope of Jesus and it just, I mean, it lit his fire. Maybe, maybe for the first time in his life was he truly, deeply passionate and compassionate for Jesus. And you remember what he was like when he, he came back. He jumped in both feet. He got involved. He said, hey, we need a worship team. We formed a, uh, we formed a worship team. You know, we got lots of grass here, if you haven't noticed. And he said, hey, I'll mow all the grass. And so he kind of took that on, and he just got really, really involved, and, and, and his faith was 
just growing in ways that I had never, I had never seen before. And finally, he kind of felt like he's back on his feet. And he wanted to move back home. He wanted to be with his daughters again. And so in October of uh, 2012, he left our house, went back down to Fort Myers. And um, uh, he, was, he was doing good, but he had left his support system. And by support system, I'm talking about all of you. Uh, if you were here and you knew Matt, you were a part of his support system. And so he left that, and you know what that does to a person. That opens you up for attack. You're under attack anyway, but all of a sudden you are exposed and under attack. And so he didn't have us, and he didn't have you. And uh, one night uh, after you know the world just kind of closing in on him, he's got bill collectors, creditors, child support, just an immense amount of, of stress. He hit a point where he became hopeless, and he turned to something from his past that, you know, that he knew would, would bring him some relief. And he, uh, he went and he bought, he bought $40 worth of heroin, the same thing that killed Micah 10 years earlier. And at 2.22 on November 21st, 2012, Matt joined Micah in death. And that one was a gut punch like I've never felt in my life. Uh, just, Micah was difficult. Losing Matt was just unbelievable. I still have trouble fathoming that. I have trouble that we're coming up on it being five years uh, since the last time I spoke to him, saw him. Um, you know, for the most part, I don't think people turn to things like drugs because they like it. I think they turn to it because um, they feel hopeless. They need release. Um, but then that leaves us, people like me and people like you who have lost either people or lost other things, it, it leaves us to try to figure out how to how to move through life. Because you know and I know that, that life goes on. And life will move on with or without us. And so now what I want to do for the, the remainder of our time is I want to talk about grieving. And I want to talk about handling loss and grief. And so as I talk about some of these things, I'm going to talk about what it means to grieve well. I'm going to talk about what it means to grieve poorly. And I've not always done a lot of grieving well. In fact, I've done quite a bit, probably more grieving poorly than grieving well. And here's the thing, I didn't even know it was happening. Okay, And I, I think that happens a lot of times. You just don't realize it. I don't think anybody intends to grieve a loss, whether it be over a loved one or a job or income or savings or home or whatever it might be. I don't think anybody intends to grieve poorly. Are you, are you with me? Does that... Does that make sense? And so now what I want to do is I just want to talk about some of this stuff from, uh, from, from Dr. Chris Miller. So let's talk about a brief theology for grieving. The first is this, is that the people of God suffer. It doesn't take much looking around to realize that suffering is all around us. You know, it's not a, just, you don't have to look far off. We have suffering right here in our own community, do we not? And here's the thing. It's not just the followers of Jesus that suffer. 
Suffering is, you know, you know, it's equal opportunity. Everybody suffers. Every person is a child of God. Not everybody's a believer in God, but every person is a child of God. And suffering affects all of, of humanity. The second thing is that God suffers. And that's unlike any other religion in the world. Our God, our Creator, the one who created the world, created the universe, created mankind, our God suffers when His people suffer. And that's a, that's a good thing. Scripture tells us that, that God is, is close to the brokenhearted. He wants to bind up, he wants to bind up those, those wounds. And you know, that's, the, that, that's the, uh, the unique quality of a relationship with God is because our God suffers right along with us. He doesn't just leave us in our suffering, but he understands our suffering. And he joins us in our suffering. We are deeply transformed through suffering. Um, you probably are aware that there is opportunity to grow through loss. And loss affects you in different ways. It affects your thinking. It affects, you know, um, it affects how you deal with people. You know, it can make you more compassionate. It can also make you more angry. But if we have a correct view of God and, and, and proper grieving, then we can be deeply transformed in some very positive ways through our suffering. Number five, God ultimately wins over all suffering. And that's, that's the good news in this, is that in the end, God wins. You know, that's our, our, our tagline for Brothers Three Ministries was, you know, God wins can give victory in the midst of a tragedy. God turns tragedy into victory. Okay? And that's a belief. That's a, that's, a, that's a present belief as well as a future belief. Trusting in Him, bringing grace now, but knowing that ultimately there's going to be restoration, there's going to be healing. And so God ultimately wins over all suffering, but until then, we must learn to grieve with God. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let's talk about the necessity of grieving. And this is where we talk about grieving well and grieving poorly. Grieving well. Grieving openly for what we have lost is a productive way to deal with our pain. It is an important spiritual practice for your formation and well-being. Okay? Death is a part of life, right? There's no avoiding it. If we're going to experience people dying around us or other losses around us, we need, we need to, a, a framework to do it in a proper way. Yes or no? Right. Problem is, is sometimes we don't do that. And that's when we grieve poorly. This is unresolved grief. If unresolved grief, if it is not dealt with directly, it emerges in other forms that are destructive to ourselves our relationship, our marriage, our ministry, whatever it, whatever it might be. Now then, what I want to do for the, a couple minutes here is I want to talk about some expressions of unresolved grief. And I'm going to give you seven of these. And as I work through these things, there are going to be three of these 
that I really resonate with because three of them in particular are things that I found myself doing, but I didn't realize it until I started getting some help, until I started looking back and having some outside eyes kind of look in and helping me grasp some of these things. So the first is denial, and we've all heard this one. But this is refusing to admit the amount of sadness you have felt resulting in walling out close relationships with others. Okay, sometimes the pain is just so great, we, it's, it's like we are afraid to look at it. Does that make sense? You're afraid to acknowledge it because you're just not sure. And I, and I think that's a sort of a self-protect, okay, because we're just not sure we'll survive looking at it. And so what we do is we can end up in denial. The second one is anger. As an anesthesia for the pain of loss resulting in defensiveness and quick flashing anger at seemingly small things, righteous anger for a cause. And two weeks ago I spoke in, in the Atlanta area in, in, at the Noonan Church. And now several years ago I was employed, I was on staff at that church. And so it was, a, it was a bit of a homecoming for me. And I got to give them a very tangible example of number two happening in my life. See the, the righteous anger for a cause? Okay, so back then, 2002, 2003, I was, uh, you know, my, my work, my ministry was with teenagers. That's what I did. And so we had these great, big, nice youth rooms, and we had just freshly painted them and got some new furniture in there. And I came in one night before worship, and the room was trashed. I mean, couches were turned over, and it's like, that you know, people just thrown stuff everywhere. And, you know, it really wasn't that big a deal, but I made it that big a deal. It became a righteous cause for me. I called a locksmith. I had, like, these really professional-grade locks put on. And as I look back on it in, in retrospect, I was like, you know, I may have overreacted there just a bit. You know, I mean, because I let loose on those kids. Okay, and here I am. 15 years later, and as I read this, I go, oh, yeah, better check that one off. That one was me. But you see, that's an expression of unresolved grief. But I did not realize that I was dealing with unresolved grief. You know, I thought I was handling it pretty well. Plus, I'm a minister, you know. Ministers are supposed to know how to do this. We're supposed to have it all together. But guess what? I didn't, but I thought I did. Okay, like I said, I'm not sure anyone chooses to go through the process in poor ways. It just sort of happens because there's not a, a great framework for it. So this is one of the things that I was dealing with. Then depression. Uh, depression, depression is when too much grief is not acknowledged openly and the pain of those feelings is turned inward for far too long. When this happens, depression can occur. This is another one that I was dealing with. I did not realize that I was depressed until 2013, October of 2013, almost a year after losing Matt. I didn't realize it. Here's how I figured it out. One day, I had a really good day. You know what made that day great? Nothing. I didn't get anything, 
Nobody showed up to surprise me. You know, I didn't get a raise. I didn't get a new car. You know, I didn't get my favorite meal. You know, it was nothing. It was just a really good day. And then all of a sudden, I realized it's been a long time since I've had a really good day. And then my thoughts started rolling. You know what? I never notice when I have a good day. But I always notice when I have a bad day. But now, the bad days were the norm, and I didn't know it. And the good day was the exception. Does that make sense? And I realized it, and I thought, man, that, that is bad. And so I talked to Bethany about it, and we agreed that I needed to go get some help. And so I went, and I started seeing a counselor here in town. And he, I, you know, I had to you know, you unpack your family history and your evaluation, and I'm going through my a dad's traumatic motorcycle injury in 99 that left him with permanent brain damage that almost killed him. And I'm going through my brother's death in 2002, and then Matt's death, and he says, man, he says, you're, you're clinically depressed. And he goes, honestly, I don't know how you've survived for this long. Uh, because this was 2002. This is stuff going back for years and years. And I never knew it. Never recognized it. I mean, I knew I was upset about some things. And I was angry about some things. But I never realized that I had this unresolved grief going on in my life. And so then, what comes along with that is withdrawal, leading to an unhealthy pattern of isolation and self-protection. Okay, I still struggle with this one. Okay, there are days where I don't want to be around people. Okay, and there are days where I struggle with depression still. Now then, I notice bad days now. Okay, if I have a bad day, I know it. Okay, and I know when that hits me. In fact, I, I've named it, I refer to it as the darkness. And it usually takes about two or three days for me to just kind of process through that. And I know when it hits that for two or three days, I'm, I, I just I have to withdraw. Now then, it used to be very unhealthy, but now thanks to some counseling and thanks to some other things, I'm able to withdraw and do some more healthy things that I'll talk about in a minute. But that was one of the things that I was doing is I found myself, it was just easy, it was easier to withdraw and to not face it, to not talk about it. Number five, rebellion. Uh, when the normal anger of grief is not resolved, it can take the form of rebellion. Sometimes inward silent rebellion, sometimes loud outward rebellion. You see this a lot with children when their family goes through a divorce. You know, uh, it just, you see it. It just sort of comes out that way, and they can rebel in school. They can rebel with parents, any kind of authority figure. You see this one a lot, and that could be an unresolved issue of grief. Number six, vicarious grief. Transferring the focus from personal grief to that of others, like a rescuer, you know? And it might be that this is what I was doing, too. I hadn't thought about it. This is the third time I've presented this material. And it occurs that this is likely what I was doing because I am a minister, so I sort of feel that pastoral urge. At the same time, my parents have lost a son, uh, my younger brother is struggling, and so maybe instead of acknowledging some of that stuff, I was trying to focus on them maybe a little more uh, in, instead of working through some stuff on my own, but that can happen as well. And then finally, number seven, addictions. When we attempt to medicate the pain of the loss through a disordered attachment to some activity or experience from alcohol, drug abuse, pornography, shopping, obsessive internet, 
uh, surfing, TV watching, overeating, undereating, whatever those things are. Any of those things, you know, if there's an addiction, it can be, it can be an unhealthy, you know, outpouring of some unresolved, of some unresolved grief there. Okay, so let's talk about the truth of unresolved grief. Sooner or later, whether you like it or not, you will grieve. Unresolved grief will find some sort of expression in your life. A small incident will trigger a huge reaction that is out of proportion, like you might end up locking teenagers out of a room. You know, it just, it just, it just happens. Those kinds of things happen. Let's talk about reasons for unresolved grief. Fear of denying the good. This is a lie from Satan, but this, this is the lie that acknowledging any pain will negate the joys. You know? I don't want to think about it. If I, if I do, you know, I'll forget about the good times. If the, the pain will just overwhelm me and we'll forget all about the great times we had. Uh, and then some brilliant person who I don't know who it is said this. Until you can acknowledge that proper mourning for the inevitable losses in your life is an affirmation of the richness of your past rather than a negation of the present, you will continue to deny any grief that you have felt. We have to acknowledge. We have to acknowledge those losses. Okay, To deny them, to stuff them down, can be disastrous. Okay? And that not only affects you mentally, it not only can affect you spiritually, it can manifest itself physically. Okay, and I'll, I'll tell you about one of these in, in just a minute. Lack of permission to grieve. Growing up, many of us received a very direct message that it's not okay to express our fears or our grief by being told, don't be sad, don't be afraid, or an even worse thing, it's a lack of faith in the goodness of God. Okay, now then, we've all said, hey, don't cry. You know, don't, don't be sad. And I, I think we mean well when we say those things. But I also think it might be a clue that we, maybe we have some own unresolved issues in our life. And that seeing somebody else in grief and suffering and pain might have to force us to face those things. So it might be a way of negating our own stuff. You know what I'm saying? Does that, does that make sense? And so, you know, we need to be careful about saying to somebody, hey, look, don't be sad. It's okay to be sad. Sadness is an emotion created by God. We see places in Scripture where God is sad. We see places in Scripture where people are sad. The, the shortest verse in the Bible is what? Jesus wept. Those weren't tears of joy. Those were, those were tears of sadness. And so we need to be sensitive to that. But that's another reason for unresolved grief. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not sure that this was not going on with my dad years ago. Uh, in 1991, uh, my dad had the same thing happen. He lost his brother. Uh, he was killed by a drunk driver. Okay? Um, 1994, his dad died of leukemia, and so he kind of took on the, the mode of, I'm the, you know, I got to be the strength, I got to be the rock, and so he did not face his own grief, and so he stuffed it and he suppressed it, and remember how earlier I said it'll eventually come out? 
it'll eventually express itself. It did. Physically, his body responded to unresolved grief. He developed chronic fatigue syndrome that eventually turned into fibromyalgia that put him on permanent disability. He's not been able to work since 1995 because of unresolved grief. It will come out in some way. You know, you just, you cannot keep the lid on it forever. And so, you know, if you've got some of that stuff going on, I'd encourage you to, you know, talk about it. Get some help, and I'll talk about some of those things in a few minutes. Lack of comfort. Comfort doesn't always change the situation, nor take away the pain, but it conveys the message that someone cares and understands. Encouragement without comfort, first, is an attempt to change the griever's perspective without validating their pain. In other words, when we say, don't cry, don't be sad, we're not validating the pain. We might be trying to encourage them, but we have to validate what's going on first. Does that make sense? We have to acknowledge it. Discounting grief. When there is no acknowledgement or validation of the pain, the message is that it shouldn't be a big deal. Or rather, you need to get over it. You ever been told that about something? Something, not, yes, there are things we have to get over. But something significant like that, or somebody say, hey, look, you got to get over it. You know, in an in a uncharitable way can be, you know, that's, that can be another reason. Well, okay, well, I guess i got to get over it. The grieving process, and you've seen these before. Denial, bargaining, anger, depression, acceptance. It may be helpful to think of the grieving process not so much as a journey through a valley where there is a beginning, middle, and end, Rather, it is more like waves that grow less intense and have greater infrequency over time. That's sort of, I think, a really good way to describe my experience. Um, not that, um, not that it's you know it's it's a journey, but it is more like waves. And what I have found with proper help, and I'll talk about that in just a minute, proper help and counseling and some tools to process some of these things, is what I find is that the waves do grow less intense and tense over time. Now, that doesn't mean that every now and then, you know, a tsunami's not coming, but that eventually resides as well, you know. And, and, and I've said this the two times I've presented this, I'll say it again tonight, I'm not sure we ever completely get over these losses. I, I don't know how we can, no matter what it is. You know, if it is significant enough to cause us to grieve in unhealthy ways, I'm not sure we ever really get over these things. I think we just learn, we just learn to find better ways of handling them. Sometimes they're healthy, sometimes Sometimes they're not. <clears throat> so let's talk about some practices for the grieving process. And these are, are healthy. One, identifying your grief. Two, engaging your grief. Three, disengaging from your grief. The first is to identify your, your losses. And you think, well, I know what I lost. You know, I know what it is. Uh, and yeah, I think for the most part we probably do, but you know, if we're in denial, if we're not 
looking at it square on, if we're not totally accepting it, then we, we need to do this. We need to make a list. And if you think you're struggling with that or you think you would struggle with that, ask somebody close to you. You know, um, you know that's what I, what I had to do with Bethany. I had to ask her when I noticed that bad day, good day thing. I had to ask her, I said, do you think I've been having some bad days? You think I've been having good days? Because, I mean, I was oblivious to it, you know? And, of course, you know, she's patient with me as I was dealing with all of that stuff. And uh, she'd say, yeah, I, you know, I, I think so. And so then it started, well, why do you think that is? Why do you think certain things trigger this? Why do you think I had a good day today? You know, it was just identifying it acknowledging it, saying this is what this is. And, then, and so that's what we may have to do. We may have to ask for help with that. We have to identify what we feel. You know, put language into what you felt or are presently feeling. Okay? I feel angry about this. Okay? I'll tell you the truth. When Matt died, you know what I felt more than anything? I felt abandonment. That's what I felt maybe more than anything else was I felt abandoned. He hadn't abandoned me on purpose, but that's what I felt. And I didn't even realize it. it. Had I just written those things down the day he died, that word never would have come to mind. Okay? But as I thought about it and tried to process some of these things, that's what I did. So I'm angry about it. I'm upset. I'm confused. I don't understand. I'm, you know, what, whatever it might be, we have to identify the things that were feeling because you know when we experience these things they bring emotions with it do they not and so we have to identify them and that also can help us in the process the second thing is engage your grief and this one is this one is really important cry yell sigh give yourself permission to feel sad to feel pain and to be in it to be in your grief um Bethany tells me I'm a fairly noisy person. But she knows when I'm dealing with something because she's pointed out to me that I sigh a lot when that stuff's going on. I didn't even realize I do it. Okay? And so I'll just, you know. Now then sometimes I just sigh, but when I do, I don't even know that I do it, but she'll say, you good? Everything all right? And, and you know, sometimes, yeah, everything's fine. I just... Hold my breath too long or something. Uh, but then there's other days when the darkness rolls in, when the big wave comes back, that, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of sign. She knows. Okay? We have to give ourselves permission to do this. Now then, one of the best things that I discovered, and nobody showed me this. I don't even know how it happened, to be honest with you. Uh, but I've shared some of these things with you before. But one of the best things, the most helpful things that I did in the midst of this process, is I learned to lament. Okay, now then, you've heard me speak on lamenting. You've heard me talk about lament songs. And I'll talk about those in just a minute, a, a little more. Uh, I learned how to write psalms of lament, like my own psalms of lament. Okay, and I've, you know, I've shared some of those things here. And I've sort of taught you and encouraged you to do some of those things as well. That was one of the most helpful practices that I ever did, you know. And so now when the darkness rolls in, instead of isolating myself and just going deeper and deeper and deeper down the hole, I go to my notebook 
and I write out a lament. And a lot of times it's acknowledging, it's, uh, it's the first one, it's identifying my grief. God, this is what I'm feeling. This is what it feels like. This is what, I'm, what I feel like is surrounding me, you know. And to be able to do that is just, it's just been more helpful than anything that I've found. Uh, write a letter that's never sent. Express your losses. Express those feelings to God. Have you ever done that? You ever done it? I would encourage you to. Write it. You don't ever send it. You know, you hear people say, you'll hear a counselor say, you know, if you've got something about, you know, you know loss or someone, you feel abandonment, you feel anger, whatever, write them a letter that you never intend to send. You know, that is just the process of, of getting it out of your body, of your mind, of your heart can be helpful. Two, keep a journal of your process through the, the loops of grief. In my, uh, and uh, don't go in my office and find this because you know where I live, but in my, my right hand, my middle right hand drawer of my desk, if you open that up and dig through a lot of stuff, you'll find my journal that I started keeping when I was diagnosed with depression. That's what my counselor said. I want you to start journaling every day. Uh, I don't like to journal. And I thought, well, okay, today stinks. That's what I'll write. Like nine pages later, I was through with the first one. Okay? And all of a sudden, it's just pouring out of me, and I can't stop it. I have to force myself to, to stop. It's amazing what starts coming out when we start acknowledging these things. And then finally, talk. Find a friend who will listen, who will validate your pain, not try to fix you. That's important. You don't want somebody to try to fix you. You want somebody to listen, right? You ever had somebody try to fix you before? Yeah, it's no good. For a long time, I was a fixer. That's what I tried to do. I tried to fix people. I wanted the answer. And what I've learned is I have to learn, I have to listen. And what you, what you will find out, too, once I realize I, if I just start listening to people, they're like, man, you were so helpful. I was like, not really. <laughs> All I did was just not talk. <laughs> you know, but just to get it out there, you know, Find somebody that you trust, that you love, that's going to acknowledge what you're going through. Uh, it might be that you need to hire a counselor, okay? Don't be ashamed of that. I had to do that. Don't be ashamed of that. Hire a counselor. Get the help you need. We need to be sensitive to the losses a spouse may be experiencing. We don't need to close ourselves off, though, and not share the things we're going through. And then finally, pray. Uh, regularly, asking God to bring comfort into your life by His Spirit and through His people. Now, then I don't say a word about praying. Because prayer is good, yes? Prayer is very good. And people will tell you that when you're dealing with something like this, you've got to pray a lot. And yes, I agree with that. That's good. But I will have to say with that, prayer is not always easy. Okay? And it is especially not easy in times like this. Okay? And so, and it sounds great, but you'll hear the cliche, when it's hard to pray, pray all the harder. When it's tough to pray, you pray tougher, you bear down in prayer. And that sounds really good. But I think the person who said that has never really experienced a tough time in prayer. Okay, now that I've been very open that when I lost Matt, I had a tough time praying. That's how I found the lament psalms. That's how I learned to lament because I just, I, you know, my practice was to get up, go down in my office, go over to my little corner, and I had my list, and I had all these things that I would pray for, and you were on it, and the church, and all these people, and family, and my kids, and everything. 
That was my, that was my practice. I'd get up and do that. I'd read Scripture and I'd pray. After Matt died, I could not do that. I'd sit down to that list and it just, I'd sigh. And I'd get up. Couldn't do it. Best I could muster was, and, and this was my prayer for a lot of days, God, just give me the strength to get through the day. Just help me through the day. That was it. I thought eventually that would improve. Well, it didn't. And so I tried to force myself back into that habit. And I could not do it. And here I am, a minister. I am your minister, struggling to pray. Okay? And that causes you a little bit of a crisis when your job is a spiritual leader. Okay? Does that make sense? And it wasn't until I discovered spiritual formation that I realized that I had a breakthrough. You know, I'm meeting with a spiritual director. This is in August, last year. A spiritual director, all they're designed to do is just ask you questions. They're not going to tell you what to do, but they're going to ask you questions. They're going to help you see things. They're just going to get another set of eyes on it. And so, yeah, I'm going through all of this, and he's asking me, you know, what I'm struggling with. I say, hey, man, I'm, I can't pray. Well, tell me about it. So I tell him about it. I tell him everything I just told you. He says, I can't do this. I can't pray anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do. He says, well, tell me what you think correct praying is. Hmm. Okay. I see where this is going. And so, you know, okay, talking to God. Yeah. Just talking to him. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, I know. I've, I've said that. I've preached that for years. He goes, well, who said getting up and sitting down in your prayer corner and working through a list, who said that's the correct way to pray? I'm not saying it's not, but what makes that the correct way to pray? I said, well, nothing. I said, well, you know, I, just, I tell people, he goes, how do you tell people to pray? I tell them just talk to God. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. I just tell them to talk to them, tell them what they're feeling, what's on their hearts, what's on their mind. I've told people that for years. You know, I'm not even, I'm not even smoking what I'm selling. And so then he tells me about something called breath prayers. And he said, a breath prayer is simply this. Breathe in, God, thanks for your grace in this moment. Breathe out. God, thank you for seeing me through that difficult time. Breathe in. God, I could really use some just extra strength, some encouragement right now in the middle of this. Breathe out. God, I failed again. I need your mercy. I've been doing that my whole life. And all of a sudden, the light went on. I've been praying all along. It was just my version of what it should be. I couldn't do anymore. Okay? And it was just this tremendous breakthrough that I had. And this was in August of just this last year. Because I think a lot of all these other things had sort of built up this wall that had, where I just could not do it in my perceived way. And I've been saying that for years, and I wasn't even, I was doing it, I just didn't realize that I was doing it. And that's been tremendously helpful to me as well. Now then, we've got to wrap this up. Lament, now I'm talking about corporately as a group. Corporately engage God with your pain, expressing your thoughts, your feelings with others. Hurt together with hope. All right, let me go back to that one. 
Um, if you're not in a life group, you are missing out on that. That's where so much healing happens in life groups. My life group was tremendously beneficial to me and helpful, and I'll always be indebted to them, to you guys in my group, as I've gone through this process. And our group has started to do some of this stuff where we've invited other members to share their stories. You know, and we acknowledge that pain, and it's been really, really helpful. But I encourage you to do that. And finally, we've got to have to disengage from the pain sometimes. Life-giving routines. Allow yourself to engage in good routines and healthy distractions and even play relationships. Allow yourself to be with others. Enter their world. This is good medicine. Again, life groups. Tremendously helpful. Uh, tremendously, tremendously helpful in that. And finally, enjoy. Embrace the moments of joy, peace, realizing that you're moving forward. Eventually, you're going to realize, hey, Don't feel bad. Don't feel guilty about feeling happy. That's God bringing about healing. Okay? That's the Holy Spirit working in your life. That's Jesus bringing restoration and new life into your life. That's what that is. Brief word of hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. That's the hope that I have in the midst of all loss that I've experienced. You want to know the reason, and I get asked all the time, how do you continue to tell this story? It's not because I get used to telling it. It's because I believe in that right there. I believe in the hope in the grace of Jesus Christ. Okay? I believe and I know that my brothers believed in Jesus Christ. And I believe that this will come true at the end of life. Okay? Now then people will tell you, people will say, you know, people will say the dumbest things when somebody dies. They'll and I've had people say, you know, your brothers, they died. They were sinning when they died. So, you know, their eternal destiny, you know. I've had people tell me that. And, you know, my initial response is never, you know, my, what I want to do is not good. Okay? But usually the Holy Spirit works. You know, I'm able to find the grace for them. And so maybe that's a, something you're wrestling with. You know, people commit suicide. There's always the question. Well, suicide is a straight shot to hell. I heard Patrick Mead say one time that what matters at death is not perfection. What matters at death is whose hand we're holding on to. Probably every single one of us is going to die with some sin in our life that we never confessed. What do we want to trust in? Do we want to trust in our ability to get things right or do we want to trust in the grace of Jesus Christ and God our Father? I think I need to side with Jesus because I'll never get it right and neither will you. But see, I have that hope. I have this hope that 
since I believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God is going to bring with him those who die, those who believe in him, those who, those who trust in him and have given their lives to them. And I believe that will include my brothers. I have that, I have that faith. Brief story of hope. And then I'm done. Matt's funeral. December 1st, 2012. I'm preaching it in Atlanta. Funeral comes and goes. After a certain time, my mom goes back to work. Lady she works with comes up to her. So they're at the funeral. Things are going bad for me. Really bad. I was going to go to the funeral. I was going to go home. I was going to end my life. She said, but then I heard the message. She's talking about, well, and I just talked about that, First Thessalonians stuff. She heard, I heard that message of, of Jesus. I heard the message of, of hope. And that changed my life. That changed my outlook. That's the power of Jesus. That's what I believe in. That's what I want you to believe in. And I'll, I'll be glad to talk about that further with anybody who, who wants to. Well, let me close with this. And it'll come on up. As a way of a, a benediction. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for allowing us to be here tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your compassion. Thank you for grieving with us and suffering with us even in the, the midst of, of our losses. Thank you for caring for us in the, in the midst of these things. Father, I pray that what we have talked about tonight has been beneficial. Father, anything that hasn't been, I pray that it would just fall off the ears of uh, of everybody here, but Father, anything that has been, I pray that you would drive it into their heart and that you would use it to bring about healing and restoration. But God, that restoration is not found in my words. That restoration is found in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that they will find and I will continue to find restoration and hope and new life in Jesus because without Jesus, there is no hope. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all together we say, Amen. Thank you.